Have you ever wondered what unicorns eat for breakfast? Or maybe what they use to keep their skin looking so flawless? Well, even if I don't know these answers, I can tell you something equally as interesting and unicorn related. Over 20% of all unicorn startups are using HubSpot, and for good reason. HubSpot's all-in-one platform levels up your sales, software, and support so you can grow beyond your wildest dreams, boosting leads and ramping sales along the way. They even have a constantly evolving collection of resources to help startups scale. Plus, with the HubSpot for Startups program, you can save up to 90% off your first year. I'll admit it does sound a little too good to be true. But unlike that majestic and also incredibly fictitious unicorn, HubSpot for Startups is all real. To see if you're eligible to save on HubSpot and take your growth to new heights, visit HubSpot.com startups. The artwork itself carries all the clues, and if you've got the connoisseurship and experience, you can look at it, and it's almost like reading a book. It tells you where it came from, who, who's handled it, et cetera, et cetera. And that's why I have so much fun as an art detective, because that's where all the clues are. Uh, I've been in business for 50 years as an appraiser, but for 48 <laughs> years, I really concentrated on Dolly because nobody else was doing it. I got warned off an awful lot. They said, stay away. It's dangerous. The mafia is involved. You get yourself killed. And I really okay. felt dedicated that somebody's got to really figure this out. I'm Brad Wolverton, and I'm here with Mark Dent, and you are listening to The Hustle Daily Show. Today, we're doing something a little different. We're going on a fascinating journey into the surreal and captivating world of Salvador Dali, one of the most famous artists in history, whose story has become all the more relevant in recent years as billions of dollars of fake Dali prints have been discovered. And I'm so excited to be here, finally making my Hustle Daily Show debut. I'm one of the handful of people who works behind the scenes here on the show. I help edit the Hustle's popular Sunday stories. And Mark, when I read one of your pieces a couple weeks ago, I knew it'd be a story that people would love to hear us unpack a little bit more on the podcast. It's the story of one of the most famous artists of all time, Salvador Dali, a Spanish surrealist who also became one of the most commercially successful artists. There's actually renewed interest in Dali. There's your story that's available on thehustle.co. And if you want to check out the images, you can go to the Hustle channel on YouTube. And next month, there's actually a new movie coming out called Dali Land, starring Ben Kingsley. Mark, your story was largely about Dali's commercial success, but it had this interesting twist. A huge part of that commercial success actually involved forged art. Before we get to that, I wanted to talk a little bit about this guy who captured probably as much attention for who he was as a person as who he was as an artist. Mark, you spent a couple of weeks working on this piece. What did you learn about Dali the person? Well, I think the the biggest thing is that uh, unlike a lot of artists, he was really obsessed with money. Part of this is because of his upbringing. He wasn't quite as much of like a rich kid as a lot of artists tend to be. But there's very much this ethos of like, you kind of do it for the love of the game in art. And Dolly was never like that. He understood that he could make a lot of money off of what he did. And he wanted to do that in part because he had such a lavish lifestyle. He would you know, make these annual trips to New York every year at the St. Regis Hotel in Midtown Manhattan. And I mean, he would just spend absurd amounts of money on champagne and room service and other things to where like he had to continuously make money just to be able to kind of continue to live the life that he wanted to. So that sort of, it made him kind of a black sheep 
In the art world, Americans consider him to be the foremost surrealist, but surrealists, a lot of them would not even consider Dali to be part of them. And that was also in part because he embraced Nazism during World War II and had plenty of other issues. But it was also because he was really a commercial artist as much as he was like a a quote unquote artist. You mentioned he doesn't really come from money. He certainly didn't lack confidence either. I mean, there was this line in his autobiography that he wrote at age seven, he wanted to be Napoleon. And then his ambition only grew from there. I think by the time he was 17, he basically gets admitted to this famous art academy but he's so cocky, he won't even sit for his exams. He thinks he's like smarter than all the professors. So he goes out into the world without this degree. And what happens? I mean, how does his art take off? Well, it pretty much takes off immediately. If you look at his list of works, it was when he was, I think, a teen, if not even a few years before, that he was already, you know, making art and, you know, art that was, you know, remembered and collected, not just stuff that was kind of thrown out or whatever. And yeah, he he's a he's a pretty big success immediately. In fact, his probably most famous paintings came out in the late 20s, early 1930s, when he would have been, I guess, like in his 20s. But, you know, I think that things really took off for him, especially when you think of this appetite for money, as I was talking about, and wanting to have all these like commercial deals happen in the USA because, you know, he came here and was immediately just an object of fascination for people in the art community and just the the media in general. And, you know, USA just is like the place where uh, people go to make money. Capitalism reigned back then as it does now. And his fame was was huge in Europe, to be sure, but he he really stood out here. I think his painting, The Persistence of Memory, the one of his most famous, showed in Paris and it didn't even sell, but he comes to the US. I don't think he comes here until 1934. Two years later, he's on the cover of Time magazine. How does he become so successful so fast? Well, it was his personality. The first time he visits November 1934, as soon as he disembarks from an ocean liner, you know, the press starts asking him where he gets his inspiration for art. And he replies, two broiled lamb chops on my wife's shoulders. And so he's just this like extreme character. And so that made people wanting to get to know him. His wife, Gala was very savvy as he was. And so they learned that. And, you know, again, they started seeking out these commercial contracts. They also had, in some ways, good fortune. You mentioned that his paintings weren't necessarily selling all that quickly or maybe for all that much in Europe. But like in in the U.S., he struck up a relationship with this manufacturing exec from Cleveland, A. Reynolds Morse. And I mean, there's a lot of mythology of, of how they met, but some say it was just in the bathroom of the St. Regis. And Morse ended up just buying dozens, if not hundreds of Dali's original works and, you know, paying handsomely for it. So he had this kind of benefactor who was paying big bucks for all of his work here. So I mentioned the persistence of memory and I'm going to try to describe it. You probably know it if you've seen it. It shows these like stopwatches basically, and they're all telling a different time and they're all like going limp. So it's almost like this distorted reality. It's pretty trippy. But you mentioned like the money too. And I think that that's something that's really unusual. Like artists typically aren't going into that line of work to get rich and famous necessarily. He admits to having this like mythical gothic love of cash. And I I guess I wonder like, what does he start doing to make all this money? I mean, for one thing, commercial contracts, you know, he's, it's very odd. You can look up on YouTube. There are 
commercials with Salvador Dali for Alka-Seltzer and for just these brands that you would never imagine that a famous artist would be in, but he is. And then secondly, toward the latter part of his career, starting around the 50s and the 60s, he got into prints. And these were a little bit different than what we think of most probably people, again, think of like that persistence of memory and his paintings and, and things like that. But Dolly also did sculptures. He did a lot of things. I mean, he wrote scripts. He did everything. And prints, he had done that a little bit early in his career, but he really started to do more of those. And they're a little bit different than paintings. They are, you know, lithographs or etchings as, as what we would really think of them as. And they take less time to complete than a painting. And the other thing is that they can also have multiple prints, right? So there's like this thing called like a printing plate that you use when you create a lithograph and you could keep printing until like that plate, so to speak, runs out and then you destroy the plate. And then all of those are considered the prints. And so you can have multiple versions of them that are all still considered originals. Yeah, so he starts producing these prints that can be done obviously a lot faster than original paintings, which essentially gives him this far bigger market. And so how did, how did that go? How did, once he started expanding into this bigger market, where did some of the problems start to creep in? It might sound weird, but there's, I guess there's two good ways to categorize what he was doing, right? There were fully original prints, which is where Dali truly created those images himself and they were on that printing plate and there could still be multiple versions of them, but they were still original. And then there were ones that were known as legitimate prints. And this is where like somebody else, you know, who, who was licensed would like make a copy of some watercolor that Dolly made. And then there'd be multiple versions of those. Again, still legitimate. And those things could sell for up to three and a half thousand dollars in like the late seventies, early eighties. So the thing is that Dolly was making so much money off of those that he wanted to keep the cash flow going. And he started to sign just blank sheets of paper to which those prints would be put on. And so it wasn't always clear if he knew what was going on them. And it also wasn't really clear whether, you know, he knew everything that was going on at this time, because uh, there were a lot of people in the inner circle who allegedly were taking advantage of this situation. So there was just a lot of prints happening, a lot of signatures just going out there into the ether. And meanwhile, I think the, the most important thing to note is, well, I guess two things. By, by 1979, Dali's health steeply declined. He'd lived for another 10 years, but he wasn't really all there. He wasn't quite the same Dali for those last 10 years. And then secondly, art started to be seen as like an investment, which is where things really started to start to get crazy. So by the 70s, he stops creating prints and stops signing his name. I mean, at one point he was signing his name like so often. He would sit down to do these signings and sign his name like every two seconds. He had a really fast signature, I guess. Yeah. And these, these signatures were kind of going out everywhere and he was kind of losing control of some of that, I think is what you're getting at. But anyway, so he stopped signing his name. And yet, as you write in the story, in this stroke of real life surrealism, the world's about to get a whole bunch more art attributed to Dali than ever before. And part of this has to do with how widely his work gets distributed. In the early part of his career, his paintings were only available in these reputable galleries. But as he gets older, by the late 70s, they start seeping out into these lower tier places. Tell us about some of those. Yeah. So as I was saying a little bit earlier with like art becoming an investment, rich, you know, really wealthy people, you know, they also saw it as an investment probably too, but they were mostly just status seekers or people who enjoyed art. Right. And that's why they would buy paintings for a lot of money. 
but these prints again, they were still expensive. Three and a half thousand dollars is, you know, certainly in the 1980s, especially is a lot of money. But there was like a similar to like what we have now when there's just like some new collectible, uh, you know, now they're usually digital, but that was like the in thing that you'd want to collect. And people would say this, it will never go down in price. And as a result, you had like these smaller galleries kind of open up that tailored to the middle class and, and they weren't even necessarily smaller, but just less prestigious. And like an example of one, for instance, is in Hawaii, there was the center art galleries, the main Center Art Gallery was on Honolulu, but they ended up expanding to have multiple chains of them all, all on the Hawaiian islands. And, you know, it wasn't like, it wasn't really like anything that you would see in Europe at that time, because it was more or less like a used car sales type of tactic where they'd have these tourists. And when they were in this showroom, you know, there'd be a couple people kind of watching over them to see what they were paying, paying attention to. And then they'd kind of like spring on them and say like, hey, here's this painting here's why it'll continue to go up in price. And they'd read from a prompt and then they'd bring them into this other room where a closer would get them to sign on the dotted line and, and everything else. And it was like a, a combination of two things. Like I said, people seeing artists, this investment and being told it would never go down. And then Dali was a big part of this just because he was like one of the few artists anybody knew, right? These are just middle-class Americans who are not very sophisticated in in the sense of art. And maybe they took an art history course in college or something like that. And Dali was the name that they recognized. So it was immensely profitable for these galleries to be stocked with a lot of Dali prints. One thing that stood out to me in the story was these people aren't just paying a few thousand dollars. I mean, it was like $11,000 or the equivalent of like the down payment on the medium price of a home at the time. Right. So they were forking yeah. over large amounts of cash just on the assumption that this artwork was going to go up in price and that it was, you know, a great investment, as you say. Yeah, yeah, right. They could be, you know, bought for as inexpensive as, you know, a couple thousand or 1,000, but it, it could be as much as 21,000 is what ended up being revealed for what some of these prints would go for. And obviously, they weren't even good prints. They weren't original or legitimate most of the time. So how did the fake start entering the market? Yeah, so... Around the late 70s and early 1980s, you know, as I mentioned, there were a lot of prints and it was it was really tough to tell sometimes. Dali and his inner circle, they never really did a good job of like archiving or cataloging how many there were that were original and legitimate, etc. So in some ways they were kind of vulnerable to, to this kind of stuff. But the thing is like forgers just found that it was pretty easy to just make like what's known as a photo mechanical reproduction of, of a print and it would look almost exactly the same and and basically what they did is they'd take like a, a high quality photo and then make a high quality copy on a really nice piece of paper and it, it's like the equivalent of having a really nice poster and these ended up at galleries including that one in Honolulu and at galleries across the country and these were not legitimate at all. I mean, they were worth maybe 25 or 50 bucks and they were selling for, again, thousands of dollars. Hey, everybody. Let me tell you about this great podcast that's available right now. Creator Science, hosted by Jay Klaus, is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, which is the audio destination for business professionals. Creator Science goes behind the scenes with today's top creators. Through narrative interviews, Jay Klaus explores how creators like Tim Urban, James Clear, 
Tori Dunlap, and Cody Sanchez are building their audiences today. And by learning how these creators make a living with their art and creativity, Creator Science can help you gain tools and confidence to do exactly the same. I was actually listening to an episode recently where Jay had on Dr. K, who is a Harvard psychiatrist. And Dr. K helps a lot of creators with performance, burnout, and dealing with a lot of negative feedback online. It's a great hour of conversation with Dr. K, where Dr. K really breaks down what it means to be a creator today and the burnout that a lot of creators do experience and what to do when you get that burnout, because you will. And you can listen to Creator Science wherever you get your podcasts, and I definitely suggest it. Listen to Creator Science wherever you get your podcasts. So you write about this guy, Bernard Yule who's an art appraiser, and he senses something's kind of fishy. How does he figure out that there's like this huge market of fake art? So there was somebody who bought a few prints from that Hawaii gallery who contacted Bernard Ewell and asked if he would appraise them. And at the time, there really wasn't anybody who was like looking into these prints because he, he reached out to like his network and various other appraisers and dealers and things like that. And they all kind of said like, yeah, we're not too sure about some of these. And and for the record, there were some very prestigious galleries and sellers who who wanted nothing to do with Dolly prints. That, in, that includes like Christie's, for instance, like the, some really big names knew there was some weird stuff going on. So it was largely just, again, these like galleries that were geared toward the middle class that were really selling them. But anyway, Ewell, he starts concentrating on Dolly and researching everything he can. Bernard? Hello, Mark. Yes, yeah, how are you? He ends up finding out, uh, I mean, a lot of things that are very technical. Now, I have seen maybe, oh golly, I don't know, maybe 80, maybe 100 fake paintings. I've probably seen at least that many watercolors, maybe more than that. But then Mm -hmm. when it comes to the print, I've done 58,000 of them. Oh my God. Most interestingly, and and perhaps most importantly, he learned that many of the fakes were printed on this paper from the French manufacturer Arjamari, which is a, they've been around for hundreds of years and, and they do a lot of lithographs. So it is like very high quality paper. But the thing is like this employee there told him that the company had changed its main watermark in 1980. And Dali, he stopped really signing things and really doing any contract with prints around 1979, 1980. If there was a piece of paper that had this watermark that was from 1980 or beyond, I mean, you could already tell that it was a fake. And then there was other different watermarks that Arjamari had on for every year. So you could just look at these watermarks and see when something was a fake. And that was a a telltale giveaway. And the interesting thing is like, you could never really look at the signature and know if it was a fake because sometimes there'd actually be a legitimate signature of Dali because he signed so many random ones. Usually there weren't. People still just forged it. But because there were so many floating around, it was easy to forge. So the signature was kind of hard to tell. But, but how you could tell was through this paper and, and through, through these other kind of very detailed things that, you know, you really had to be an expert to notice. So how many forgeries are we talking? Like, what, what is the size of this market? How big does it get? So people suggested that in the U.S. that it was perhaps $625 million to as much as $1 billion worth of fake dollies were sold in the 1980s and worldwide, potentially $3 billion. And, and so that would mean hundreds of thousands of like actual fake prints and maybe, maybe up to millions. It's crazy. 
So Dali's, he's alive during this period, right? How does he react to it? I mean, obviously it's, it's pretty damaging to his reputation. Yeah, it, it is. He, he came out with a couple of statements in the mid eighties, 1985, 1986 or so. And he said like, Hey, I didn't sign anything after, you know, late 1979. And then in the year 1980, I like signed a few checks and a couple of random contract things. So anything beyond that is most certainly not me. So in that sense, he definitely tried to like cast doubt on, on these prints that were floating around. Um, and, you know, he obviously wasn't making any money off of these fake prints either, you know, because he didn't have contracts for those. There was no business plan of his to like have a bunch of fakes enter the market. I think there's some debate as to, you know, how much he really cared or, you know, what enjoyment he might have gotten out of it since he was kind of like this surrealist, interesting character. But yeah, he, he definitely tried to kind of pour some cold water on, on some of the fakes. So it takes a while before this gets kind of prosecuted. So it's not until the late 1980s when the feds go after this Hawaiian art dealer you were talking about before. That, and they get convicted of selling over $100 million of fake Dali art. Where, where else was this happening? Was it just in, in that kind of market there? So it was all over. There were galleries that were busted by the feds in Denver, New York, Phoenix, Chicago, LA, Alaska. So, I mean, almost everywhere. If you have Alaska and Hawaii, that means it's basically everywhere in the US. There were, there were some galleries that they didn't necessarily get punished legally, but they were warned and they, they shut down before they could get charged. And, and there were, so there was a lot of instances of that too. But I think in, in some ways, most interestingly, there were also just boiler room operations. And those were like in New York City, largely just kind of like the penny stock boiler room operations where you'd have people just selling fake dollies over the phone. And they'd, they'd get a membership list from like the American Medical Association of Doctors or like dentists. And they would just cold call people and convince them to buy art that was, you know, usually a fake dolly or maybe like a fake Chagall or Moreau or Picasso or something like that. And so those were busted by the feds as well. Hmm. And then it turns out there's this one Long Island family that's at the center of a lot of the fraudulent sales. The feds come after them eventually too, right? Yeah. So after they started doing a couple of these investigations, like, like in Hawaii and, and elsewhere, there was an investigation and it was called Operation Bogart, which stands for Bogus Art. I mean, it was by the Postal Inspection Service. And these, a couple of agents, they ended up just kind of making connections with different people who found that they were selling these fakes and infiltrated a couple of these schemes. And they found out that they were able to trace it to the Emil family. And, and again, like you mentioned, they were on Long Island. Leon Emil was sort of the patriarch of the family. And he actually died in 1988, but they kept on investigating his family who, who kept on you know producing and distributing these fakes. But Leon Emil was actually, he was a legitimate producer of prints back in the day. And he had, as the feds found, family had just kind of gone rogue. They had these contracts. He knew Dali personally and everything. But then they just decided that they could make a lot of money making prints that were not original. And um, it's estimated that they produced around 80 to 90% of the fake Dalis that were sold in the United States. And when they held their raid of the Emile's warehouse on Long Island, they uncovered 50,000 unsold Dali prints right there, along with 25,000 prints of other artists. That's crazy. 
So your piece was only part of our coverage of this story. We also interviewed Bernard Uhl, the appraiser, for our YouTube piece. You guys can check that out by searching up the Hustle YouTube channel. But what did you learn from him? Well, I, I guess the most interesting thing about all of this, honestly, is that there's still a lot of people like me who are just finding out that there was so much Dali fraud. And that's because, you know, it's been 35 years now since like the heyday of this fraud. And the people who are finding out are, you know, people in their 30s, maybe in their 20s or maybe in their 40s who realize that they're they find some old Dali maybe in their parents' attic or basement or something like that. And they'll go and be curious about getting it appraised. You know, maybe it's a painting that their parents talked about and really enjoyed and they find out it's fake. Because everybody wanted Dollies, but he never, ever did any kind of management of anything. He never kept a catalog of his artwork. He never yeah. kept photographs of his artwork. They didn't yeah. have records of where pieces went when they were sold there was nothing. It was just chaos and, you know, some rather extraordinary characters. So people could step in and say almost anything they wanted, make up almost any story about when they'd been with Dolly and he'd given them permission to do this, that, and the other, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, because he was missing in action. And mm-hmm. there was nobody at that time who in any way was protecting his rights. A lot of them don't even end up going to you know, Bernard Yule, but there's like, there's Facebook groups where if anybody posts something about like a finding some Dali, then I mean, it, there's basically just like a collective groan within the group. Like, oh yeah, sorry, it's probably not real. So, I mean, Bernard Yule, who is one of just a few appraisers in the US who's really focused on Dali, he gets still several inquiries every day from people curious about a Dali and, you know, not all of those are people who end up paying him to actually appraise it, but he, he still usually gets probably one or two a week of actually clients that he'll appraise it for. It's nuts. Apparently he's appraised like 60,000 Dali prints and about half of them were fake. Is yeah. this, is this, do you, do you see this problem going away anytime soon? Probably not. Just because people are going to continue to find Dali prints somewhere. You know, maybe it's at like a Goodwill, Salvation Army. I mean, there was like a famous case, I think, 10 or 12 years ago that the New York Times wrote about where I think it was either at like a, you know, a Salvation Army or a secondhand store like that in Texas, where there was like a Dolly print and there was just a a big debate over whether it was real enough to the point where the New York Times wrote about it. So, you know, these are going to continue to circulate. And just because Dolly's name is so widespread Anytime something of his is found, whether it's in your parents' house or, or wherever else, you're going to be interested and you're going to want to know if it's real. Because if it is real, it could have some amount of value to it, or at least you think that it will. You know, I, one other thing that I learned is that Dolly prints are not worth as much as you would likely think because of the fact that there are so many fakes. That is, the original and legitimate prints, are, they're not worth probably what they would be. They certainly haven't held their value or they haven't gained much value like what you would have assumed from back in the 80s when they were everybody was told that these were great investments. That certainly hasn't happened. Bernard Ewell, the appraiser, suggested that an original print of Dali, so that's one that he like really worked on and, you know, did the engraving or the printing plate kind of part himself, would go for maybe $4,000 to $6,000 today. And obviously in the 80s, it might have gone for 3500 on the high end. So, uh, I mean, with inflation, you'd think that those would go for at least 8000 to 10000 Wow. So do you have any advice for people who think they might 
own an actual Dali painting or print? The only way that you can truly tell is to have like an appraiser look at it, like, you know, a Bernard Ewell and, or as I mentioned, there's a couple of others around the country who, you know, as an aside, <laughs> I did not get into this in the written part of the story, but they often have a lot of feuds amongst each other. So there's like a whole nother story about how like the Dali appraisers don't always see eye to eye on a lot of stuff either. But if, if you really have a feeling that it could be real, then you should get it appraised. But I mean, the odds are against you. I mean, there are a lot of original and legitimate Dali prints out there. I mean, there are thousands and thousands of, of legitimate original prints, right? But there are more fake ones. It's interesting, like the, that gives you like, for instance, if like, you know, Yule, for instance, like appraises it and says it's authentic, then he can, you know, give like a certificate of, of whatever. It's not a certificate of authenticity because never trust those things. But, you know, he'll write a report basically that will suggest that it's real. So that way, if you want to go maybe sell it somewhere else, you have that to back it up. But those are the things you have to have more or less to uh, to prove that a Dali is not fake. So if you spin this story forward, what's the takeaway? I mean, are we going to see like a lot more forged art in a world where AI can make instant replications? Yeah, there's, I mean, there's been some news just recently about fakes or kind of hitting the market again over the last three or four years in art, even before kind of AI got into it. And and now that certainly opens the door for more of it. We are seeing, again, you know, fake art on the uptick. But to me, there's always just something that people say, oh, this is an investment. And there are very few investments in life, you know, basically stocks and, and bonds, et cetera. Those are investments and they don't always go up. Sometimes they go down. But we always like to think there's other things that are investments and, and they're really not. Things that people collect, you should collect because you want them, because you like them. And maybe someday they'll be worth money and you'll want to sell it if you don't like it anymore. But, you know, whether it's NFTs, anything else, there's no guarantee that those things will go up. And if to, to think of something as a tool for investment means you've already lost, I think. Mark, thanks a lot, man. You can go to the Hustle channel on YouTube to find out more on this stuff. That's going to do it for us today. Thanks for tuning into the Hustle Daily Show. We're a proud part of the HubSpot Podcast Network. Our editor today is Ezra Trupiano, and our executive producer is Darren Clark. We've got a whole lot more tech and business coverage in our newsletter. If you're not subscribed, go get yourself signed up at thehustle.co slash email. Catch you next week. <laughs>